Hey everybody, this is Chris and Jason from Silver Solutions Podcast. Join us as we chat with people from around the globe as they share their real life stories of recovery. If you like what you hear, please like and subscribe so you can easily find us and our latest episodes. And welcome back to Sober Solutions Podcast. Tonight is episode 59. And tonight we're going to be talking about technology addiction. And I'm very excited for our guest this evening, Michael S. Michael is a licensed professional counselor in private practice in West Hartford, Connecticut. He has appeared on MSNBC, Fox, The Today Show, iHeartRadio, and in the Hartford Current. Michael knows that recovery takes time, acceptance, daily work, and keen awareness. One of his mottos is that small, consistent daily actions create big and lasting change. Michael's releasing his new book, Technology Addictions, a guide to recognize and deal with technology dependency in our lives by the end of the year. Technology is another of Michael's passions. He is the president and CEO of the technology firm Shell B, which was founded in 2006. He's a founder and director of Technology Addiction Center and Plan B Consulting, which he launched in 2019. So everyone, please help me welcome Michael. Michael, how are you tonight? Very, very fine. Thank you for having me on your podcast. Absolutely. Well, you know, your topic this evening around technology addiction is very interesting to us. We have skirted the issue a little bit on previous episodes, and I'm really glad that we're able to talk about this in a much deeper way. So before we get into all of that, can you just tell our listeners a little bit more about you and your journey in recovery? Yes, of course. And thank you very much again for having me on. My name is Michael S. I am a recovering alcoholic and an addict. I have presently 22 years, 10 months and a couple of days. So if I stay alive and clean sober until January, 25th of 2023, I will have 23 years, but today I do not have 23 years, but I do have today. Uh, my journey in recovery is probably not very different from many stories you've heard on this podcast, and I've listened to quite a few. They're fantastic. I love what you're doing, guys. I started uh, drinking quite early in life, nine, 10 years of age. My grandma was making little wonderful sweet wine for the holidays. And being a very helpful single child of a single Jewish mother, I would help to carry half-empty glasses because we have no alcoholics in my family. To the kitchen, they would leave half full and arrive empty in the kitchen. Very simple. Nice, wonderful, warm feeling in my tummy. No pukies, no police was called, nothing like that. Um, very first time I do recall drinking for the effect was when three other friends threw in a ruble piece that was born in a different country, went down to the square for the only liquor shop in town and shared that with the town drunks that were hanging out outside and drunks would go in, buy a bottle for themselves, a bottle for us, give us a bottle, 12-year-old kids. We would take that bottle up to the attic, drink it, the world would start spinning, we'd throw up, could not wait to repeat that again. They, was 14. I emigrated from USSR, came to the United States, just, just turned 15, ended up in college as a freshman at 16, 16 and a half, found my people very quickly, was introduced to weed, Marana started smoking weed, drinking, started dating an amazing young lady. And she was my girlfriend for four years in school. I was a computer science major. She was a psychology major. Within six months, we dated for four years, within six months of dating each other, Nancy suggested to me for the first time ever, anyone did that, said, you know, Mike, you're a great guy, really, a lot of fun, but you don't drink normally. You definitely, definitely need to go and talk to somebody about your drinking. It's not normal what you do. And in order to keep my girlfriend, I did go to counselor, and I spoke to the counselor, and I lied to the counselor, and the question was like, so how much do you drink? I don't know, two, three beers, like daily. No, 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 like, you know, monthly. It's probably like 24 empties in my car from the night before. So a lot. And uh, in 1987, I, I graduated college in 85, got a job, 
moved out right away because who wants to be smoking weed and drinking, you know, living with the parents? Nobody wants that. And I'm not quite 20 yet, but making good money on Wall Street working for Merrill Lynch. I moved out, started doing what I'm doing there, met an amazing woman that came to interview me about pot smoking addiction book at that time. We met in Pot Smokers Anonymous. And five days later, I asked this woman to be my wife, um, to which she responded, it'll be all right. That was her response. You cannot make this stuff up, folks. You really can't. That was her response. Um, that was 1987. So we make it to May 23. It'll be 36 years for us. So I guess she was right. It was all right. <clears throat> we moved out from New York, left New York, went to live in Northampton, Massachusetts. Um, she's five years older than I am. I was 22. She's 27 times. So lived a couple of years. We, you know, got drinks, squared away, drinking together every weekend. Um, you know, she's 30 plus. We start talking about kids and this and that. We try and we try. We have zero results to show for it. Nothing. So we start checking things out. They trace the problem right here immediately, instantly. So oh, see this little thing here, piece of cake, 45 minutes in and out. But all patient surgery will take care of it a year later. You guys will have as many kids as you want to, as you can generate and support. You're all set. Don't worry about it. We got you. Indeed, 45 minutes, no general anesthesia, nothing, you know, a little repair, blah, blah. Um, this was the first time I was introduced to the wonderful world of pain pills. So if drinking tequila and smoking weed is great now, you know, you know start adding two Percocets, then three, then five. And seven. I spent the entire summer doing that. There's only one problem with that. The operation, the procedure was truly small, tiny, very small. You know, came back within 15, 16 days with a month's supply saying, guys, I'm in horrible pain here. You know, I need another one of those magic 30 bottles. They're like, look, so you healed. There's like no scar left. There's like a you know, quarter inch scar. There's like nothing, but you're, you're in pain. Okay, we'll give you like five or 10 pills more, but that's it. You don't want to like play around with that stuff. But sure, oh, really? You will tell a technology guy who knows about scanners, they can use Photoshop. Yes, even back in 1992 and 93, believe it or not, we had Photoshop. Make a long story short, I started generating my own prescriptions. So um, that went on for a while. And uh, until I... I, I got an MBA from the University of Massachusetts in, in Amherst, and then the Iron Curtain fell. And with my MBA, I got an amazing job as an investment banker, six-digit salary, moved back to Moscow with my wife, an 18-month-old daughter at this point in time. So operation was a smashing success. We have two children at this point in time. In Russia, things were simplified. You did not need to do anything with scripts or anything like that because they all look the same. They look like a freshly pressed $100 bill. You can walk into any pharmacy, put a $100 bill on the counter, tell them exactly what you want. They'll ask you to come out back, and they will dispense it to you. And say, thank you very much. Can you please come back anytime that you need more of this medication? Um, that job lasted a couple of years. Things got from bad to worse with pain pills, benzos at that equation, drinking was almost daily. That ended up with my first TIA, transit schematic attack, paralyzed on the left side, walking around in circles, drooling. So that was my first overdose, TIA. I was evacuated on a private plane from Moscow to Helsinki. My seven-month pregnant wife basically saved my life by insisting that I was evacuated, that right then and there, spent seven days on blood thinners, whatever was blocking my artery dissolved and I back to normal. I survived just fine. That should have been a lesson. It wasn't because the job ended once they found out who they were dealing with in Moscow, came back to the United States, got an even better job in venture capital, detoured into venture capital for five or six years. Spent about six, seven, eight months on fun. Internet was coming up. Money is good. I love the technology. 
100%. Once I figured out that I could do jobs basically with, with my eyes closed, I went right back to manufacturing my own prescriptions, leaving lunches, taking down a few nips, smoking a joint, popping a few pills, manufacturing strips again. That lasted for another few years until, you know, we think we're so smart, really. We think we're so freaking smart that in uh, December of 1997, I forgot. I simply forgot to, one script was no longer enough for 120 Vicodins. Um, I had to get multiple scripts and I forgot to change the number. You cannot have the same script with the same number going to two different pharmacies. I forgot. Forgot to change it. So one pharmacy dispensed 120 Vicodins to me as before. The second pharmacy had two boys in blue with handcuffs waiting for me, you know, in Rocky Hill Police Department took me in. And what I did not know at the time is that each one of those scripts turns out in the state of Connecticut is a class A felony, punishable by 16 years in a slammer, eight years apiece. And that's what I was looking at in February of 1998, standing in front of a judge with a very highly priced lawyer, never told my wife a word. My wife didn't know I was arrested and what I was facing. Borrowed money from my mom, hired a lawyer, and the lawyer basically put his hand on my shoulder, said, please don't speak. Allow me to speak. The judge says, Mr. Michael, what the hell are you doing here? You have two small children. You have a wonderful, amazing career. You're known entity in the state of Connecticut. You have no priors, and you're about to go away to jail for 16 years. What are we going to do with you? What a mystery. And my lawyer says, Your Honor, this is not a bad person. This is a sick person. You need to help him. And, and, and judge, like, very dramatically, in a very theatrical fashion, goes with his palm against his forehead, goes, oh, my God, I see so many of you sick people in front of me every single day. says, but because you are responsible for feeding two small children, because you are not violent, because you have no priors, et cetera, et cetera, you're going to get one shot, one shot only, okay? If I don't see your ugly mug here in this room for the next two years, you don't have as much as a jaywalking ticket. You don't have an arrest. Your record is wiped clean. If you are sick, go where you're going to get well. Go to AA. They will help you. Okay? We're going to supervise you. You're going to be getting signatures. And you're going to get well. And in two years, you have no record at all. This was February 1998. My sobriety and my recovery date is January 25th of 2000. So by simple math, Process of subtraction. Let's figure out whether 16 years in a slammer is sufficient enough of a motivation for an intelligent, educated person who's not violent to get clean and sober. No, the only thing that I learned in that courtroom is that making your own prescriptions will land you in jail. Don't make your own prescriptions. Getting clean and sober never entered my consciousness for one second. All I did was simply switch to heroin, switch to dope. I started sniffing it. I stopped manufacturing strips. Never made another one ever. But I started sniffing dope. I sniffed it for about four or five weeks, put a spike in my vein, and that was the beginning of an end. Ultimately, I'm a product of seven detoxes and seven rehabs. I've been twice to Hazleton. I've been to the worst rehabs and the best rehabs in the country. None of them got me clean. So I learned a lot. I learned a little something in each one of the places that I went to. I had rapid detoxes. I've done it all. I've tried to become a unicorn, a person who can use normally. Doesn't happen. Until Hazelton kicked me out last time in September of 1999. They sent me to Chicago because Chicago had a bed open. I stayed in Chicago until Chicago Hazelton kicked me out stone cold sober, basically for being a dick and for being an obnoxiously, disgustingly egotistic person. And I was upset. That hurt me deeply. I was about to sleep outside in the park in October in Chicago until a sponsor of my roommate from Hazelton put me up on his couch for seven days. And then bed opened up at the Beacon House up in Belmont, 80 bucks a week. I was given that bed. I got a job at CompUSA paying me $7.25 an hour selling computers. Okay. I stayed. Clean and sober in November, December. This was the big 2000. I asked my wife if I'd come back home to spend the big millennium turnover with my kids. I did. She allowed me. Spent five or six, seven days here in Connecticut. Didn't drink. 
On the way back home, sitting at Bradley Airport, I had one lousy, warm Budweiser. I hate Budweiser. By the time I landed in Chicago, two hours later, I was a maniac. Absolute freaking maniac. Never bought drugs, didn't know where to buy drugs. Went through a string of cabbies, the last hundred bucks, taking me, asking them, where can I buy some? I need this, I need this. 19 guys told me to get lost. 20 of the guys said, I'll take you, no problem. Just share a little bit with me, we'll be good. This was January 7th. My sobriety date is January 25th. What went down the next 18 days is a blur. Bank forms and loans were taken out. Money was stolen, fudged. I don't have no clue what went down until in the morning of January 25th, that very same roommate who sponsored put me up on the couch and I were sitting in the room. We had one last bag of dope left and we split it down the middle. I'm here to tell you the story that 29-year-old Troy F. took half a bag, experienced shooter, put it in his vein, pushed the spike down, 15 seconds, blue, foaming at the mouth, gone. He was number one. I did not use drinking drugs since then. That is not when I got clean and sober. Okay? Seven days later was his funeral in Chicago. He was from a very wealthy Texas family. His father was one of us. His father had three years in this program. His father shot himself on Christmas Day. Troy came back with a bundle of syringes and no desire to live whatsoever. 30 days later, he succeeded. He died. Within 30 days, the family lost a father and a son. There were two sisters left and a mom. Furs, diamonds, very wealthy family from Texas. The amount of pain and sorrow and what I experienced at his funeral was unlike anything I've ever seen or felt before. I have no idea what external force or something from outside of me pushed me to get on my knees in front of Troy's casket and beg for my life out loud, quietly, but audibly. I knew I was next. And I asked for help. I said, please, I cannot do that. I cannot cause that much pain to my mom, my wife. I don't want to leave two kids as orphans. I love them very much. Please help me. I went down one way, and I came back up this way. I don't know what changed. Some sort of a light switch. I didn't even know I had a light switch. Never mind that it worked. I went down one way. A light switch said, okay. Turned on, and I came up said, knowing, knowing that I don't have to use today. So long as I go to a meeting, I work the steps, I got a sponsor. This person over here, he took me through the steps. I spent a year in Chicago, came back to Connecticut, got a sponsor here, sight unseen, via phone from Chicago. By the time I landed two hours later in Connecticut, I had a sponsor here. That sponsor was with me for 12 and a half years until I lost him to lung cancer. He couldn't stop smoking. He was a great guy, Les. We'll never forget him. Before Les died, he made sure I had a sponsor, Larry W. Larry sponsored me for a number of years until Larry moved to Texas to be with his family. And I have John G. that have been sponsoring me now for another number of years. I have 22 years, 10 months, and two days, and give or take 21 hours, clean and sober. Not a drink, not a drug, I have entered my system in the last 22 years and 10 months. I got involved in service, I sponsor people, I go to six meetings each day. Now we have Zoom, I go five days on Zoom, one day to my home group. I'm very, very active in the program. This changed my whole life. I only know technology and I only know addiction. Technology addiction have become the intersection and career. I went back to school at 50. I got a, I got a degree in psychology. I was able to pass the test first time around. I got licensed and I've been a therapist and a licensed professional counselor in the state of Connecticut for a number of years now, working with people like myself, others, and I specialize in technology addiction because that subject is really something that fascinates me. And I'm very interested in it and I can't wait to talk about it. That's my story. Thank you, Mike.
That was a great story. I really like the quote from the judge. This is not a bad person. This is a sick person. I've heard that a lot of times. It's true. A lot of people think it's a moral deficiency when people are addicted to drugs. So it's amazing that you got your one more shot. And what's even more amazing is you were facing countless years in jail and that still didn't get you sober. It took, and I, I'm really sorry to hear about your experience with Troy and his, his passing, but it took this life event, like their actual life to get you clean and sober. Chris, it's good that you're sitting down because that count, that unfortunate count as of last week stands at 64, less than 23 years. I put 64 people in the ground that were close to me. My own brother took his own life in 2004. He was one of us. So that number is mind boggling with this disease kills people. And it's not only drugs, it is behaviors, gambling, technology, porn, shopping. You would be amazed. Addiction is addiction, whether it's substance or process. And I will talk more about it as the podcast goes on. Yeah. Speaking of other addictions, you know, the focus on this episode is technology addiction. So can you go into how you got into technology addiction and kind of what types of addiction that really entails? When I think of technology addiction, I think of gaming or social media, and maybe porn. Kind of walk us through how you got into it and what you focus on. It just happened by accident, but we all know there are no accidents, that uh, Dr. David Greenfield, who wrote a book called Virtual addiction. Back in 1999, he noticed something about the internet, gaming, technology, shopping, pornography, et cetera, et cetera, that hooked the brains of people, hijacked it, same way drugs do. Dope, brain doesn't discriminate. Dopamine is dopamine is dopamine. Whether you get your dopamine from a bottle of vodka, from hit from a crack pipe, or from opening up, you know, xhamster.com, it doesn't matter which way the dopamine hits. The brain knows, oh my God, this feels good. This feels really good. The simple amount, unlimited amount of content, new content on the internet is what hooks people in. It's like a monkey hitting that bar for that dopamine hit. Whatever gets them off. It is gambling. It is porn. It is gaming. Gaming is very addictive. It is countless hours spent on YouTube, Hulu, HBO, social media, you know, what? just countless hours lost looking for the next fun thing on the internet. Next thing, next thing, next thing. Hours are gone, okay? Dr. Greenfield and I, to this day, continue and work together. He inspired me to go back to school. He's my mentor. And this is why I landed this career. This is an intersection of what I love, technology, or what I know, what I know what I love, technology and addiction. That's it. What else do I know? That's how I got into it. And we're still working together. I totally get the obsessive nature of technology. As we were talking about this and as you were sharing your story and what you were just talking about, that constant clicking, I was thinking about my own technology use, especially when I was actively using, I would refresh my Facebook, refresh my Instagram, be on some porn site and like all of that, all of the time. And it would be obsessively so that I wouldn't answer phone calls from friends or family, or mm -hmm. I wouldn't want to go out anywhere because I wanted to see what was going on in Instagram or like whatever. And, you know, now, I mean, I, I was just thinking about how the clickbait on Facebook is geared for you to hit that quick button. 100%. The marketing aspect behind this is really geared for you to keep clicking, keep clicking, keep clicking, keep clicking. And I think gambling and organizations like that that have moved online have started to put out this like little disclaimer. If you have a gambling problem, please call this number. 
But I wonder if we need one for social media too. My question for you, Michael, is have you seen an uptick in technology addiction, specifically around social media, I would say, since COVID? I mean, we're not out of the woods of it yet, but like that was a big time where, you know, addiction in general skyrocketed. The short answer is yes, of course, because I was in practice before COVID. And then COVID hit. Actually, I have a book coming out in December. I obviously, for obvious reasons, the book was always designed to be 12 chapters long. We have 12 steps, but 12 chapters in the book for a reason. COVID changed that. There are now 14 chapters in the book. Because what I've noticed, what I received, and the way my practice exploded, during and now it's just continuing to grow by leaps and bounds because the social infrastructure, the social hammer, social media is but just one vector within that. There's a much bigger meta level of a problem here, especially for younger people, younger generation that are conditions, a natural thing for us to be, to have peers, to have friends, to socialize, to go hang out, to do stuff together. That's been ripped away. Most formidable young years and teenage years have been forced basically into isolation behind the screens. The screens have become their everything. Social outlet, entertainment outlet, porn outlet, gambling outlet, study outlet, right? So what young people ended up doing is Combining multiple screens, a Chromebook with a teacher droning at them that they have on mute and the lid half closed while they are playing, you know, Gears of War over here and they're watching some adult material over there and then they're ordering pizza over on this side, right? And then what's on Amazon, let's stream something off of Amazon or Hulu over on this screen. Three, four screens going at the same time and that's not enough stimulation to make up for the loss of peer interaction. There's a lot of anxiety, there's a lot of depression, there's a lot of difficulties reconnecting, re-entering normal, physical, IRL interaction. Screens are safe. Screens, we, there is an element that we control where we go, what we see, what we click on. We feel in control. Out in the big world, there is no feeling, it's unpredictable. Young people want to feel in control. Therefore, they end up staying behind the screen much, much, much longer than needed. What do they always say? Please don't call me. Text me. If you want to call me about something really important, text me. You're going to call me, and maybe, and maybe I'll answer the phone. But don't call me, right? That's not normal. That's not how we interact. We come and knock on the door. We call people, right? Something has shifted in the collective psyche of a population, and they are paying dearly for it right now. We don't know full effects of this epidemic yet, and that's what my last two chapters are about. It's, it's so on point. I'll just make this very personal to me. Yeah. I, I remember when I first got my first BlackBerry. And I was like, oh, I have the world at my fingertips now. And now as I'm sitting here recording this episode with you, I have my iPhone. I have two laptops. I have uh, another monitor right here to my left. I have an iPad being delivered this week. I mean, that's not to say that I also have three big screen TVs. My partner has his laptop and devices. Like it just permeates our life because we feel it is so much more convenient but i get lost in that perfect example of like i can't find myself anywhere unless i use ways and yet paper maps worked very fine for decades centuries even right it's simpler it's easier it's the novelty it is what we call a roulette effect right the next pool is going to pay out the very next pool of that bar is going to pay out we're looking for a payout so it's unpredictable but it's there 
sometimes roulette will pay out on a pool. So it's this unpredictability which feeds into this addictive cycle. And the social media companies and gaming companies know that. And they have been called on a carpet for making their content, the clickbait that you mentioned, exceptionally attractive and addictive. So they have set up ostensibly departments within Facebook, Snapchat, Instagram at this point to monitor, to make it less addictive. They put warnings on those gambling sites. If you got a problem, call this number. But if you don't have a problem, please place your bet. What addict will tell you right up front, I have a problem, I shouldn't be here, right? That's not how we work until we're faced and forced to face our problem squarely. We will not admit we have a problem. By the time people come and see me, there is a problem. Weight gain, anxiety, depression, severe isolation, socialization problems, not just with family, but with other young people, okay? And even older people are getting caught up in that. You'd be surprised. Men and women, it used to be 90, 10, men, women, no longer. It's probably 60, 40 now. 60% men, 40% women gamble, women game. Women look for relationships online. Women love shopping. Separate issue. Don't get me started on shopping. Separate issue entirely. But it's about 60-40 right now. Not quite 50-50, but no longer 90-10. You were talking about the pleasure systems and, and, yeah, the release of dopamine. One thing I'm trying to integrate in my life is I take my children for walks and I just leave the phone at home. Mm-hmm. And I can't count how many times my hand goes directly to my pocket and it's not there, but it's just a natural reaction. And I'm really trying to stay present, stay connected. It is a hard thing to do. It is really hard. And I think of something and I automatically want to put it in my calendar. I think of something, want to look it up. It's just this constant hand to pocket scenario. With that being said, I want to try to focus on what is the solution and is there a solution? So I'm assuming in your your book, your research, your practice, you have many ways to get past the anxiety, depression, how to stay present, how to stay connected. So I'm really interested to kind of focus the conversation on the solution. There are solutions available from every vector. Something you mentioned specifically about phones, this muscle memory to reach into the pocket, whether the phone's there or not. And sort of kind of have this little bit of a stomach dropping when it's not there. Your hand reaches for it, but it's not there. And you say, well, then you remind yourself, well, I'm here to be with my kids. Phone can wait for now. There's no emergency on the planet, right? We lived without cell phones. We did fine. Something like the light phone is available. There are Android offers solutions that are software-based for minimalist skinning and just the minimal applications and black and white motifs. Color is very attractive and enticing. You communicate a lot more content through color. So there are hardware solutions that are available. Believe it or not, there are 12-step fellowships that are available at this point in time. They've been around for quite some time. OLGA, Online Gamers Anonymous, and ITAA, Internet and Technology Addicts Anonymous, based on the 12-step model. Online meetings available, funny, right? You should go online to cure yourself from problems that you have with going online. But this is the reality, what we're dealing with. But they also have face-to-face meetings, especially in large metropolitan areas. Um, A lot more of uh, mental health professionals nowadays are getting trained and becoming aware of this. There are conferences. DSM-5 is getting updated. Well, it has not been fully updated gambling has been recognized as a valid you know addiction disease probably the next release of the dsm will also recognize technology screens social media gaming gambling as a problem area as well so but the help is available it is out there 
from trusted fellowships to hardware to software to parental blocks to monitoring to schools implementing blocks to actual social media companies and gaming companies not being called on a carpet and trying to address it from within the company. How do you make it a compelling product without making it an addictive product? Nobody has been able to solve that problem just yet in the social media and gaming world yet in the content creation world. You mentioned schools and I find yeah. that interesting because a lot of the people that I've hired recently, they're excellent employees. But one thing that I would say there's room for improvement is what you mentioned before. And it's that socialization and communication. I was never, I would say the smartest or the best at my job. But one thing I did excel at was communication. I was able to talk to people. I was able to uh, have a, hold a conversation, look someone in the eye and listen. Right. And that's one thing that I find that is lacking in a lot of the people that I've recently hired. Now, I don't wanna be one of those older people that says, you know, the younger generation. However, that's something I've noticed. So do you see schools integrating some of these teachings or, you know, trying to solve this issue at a younger level? Schooling and education reform moves at a glacial pace. Uh, they, the Delta in time, the lag between recognizing the problem and having valid, uh, proven scientific approaches to solve the problem implemented in place can take decades. Even at this point, even at this point, as the kids go back to school now, IRL, the teachers are seeing what you're seeing especially in the younger generation, middle school, grade school. Um, there are the youngest people that are coming into grade school. They don't know how to socialize because when we go to school, first grade, second grade, third grade, right? Just elementary school has been ripped out from them. So they're now of age to go go past the elementary school, but they do not possess the social skill, the physical IRL socialization skills, because they spent essentially half their life behind a screen. The kids know they make these things so easy to use. What do you see a lot of parents do? Not teachers necessarily, but parents. Child is screaming, hand them an iPad, hand them an iPhone with a little child appropriate game and the child instantly goes quiet. It's the new binky. It's the new binky. But what about socialization? What about reading the expression, the eyes of mom, of dad, right? That's lost because the child is now sitting here behind the screen doing little fruit ninja on the screen or something like that. They know how to do that. They, they know, they instantly, they touch, they have more fear. They will yeah. figure it out how to do it and they go into themselves. They go in as opposed to learning about the world by interacting with the world. Now there's a filter in place that is a lot more fun than real world because we can control the filter. You don't like this game, go to another game. Oh, you don't like that game? I'll give you another game. It's unlimited content the child will stay entertained and that becomes that raises a dopamine level and that becomes the new norm they expect to be entertained and have this much fun and engagement all the time and i'm sorry but you know biology 101 or first lesson history is just not that much fun to them so they fall asleep they can't pay attention they can't follow the teacher they can't focus it's not fast enough. The teacher is not moving fast enough for them. Same as Fruit Ninja. Moves at a glacial pace. It's like they fall asleep. They, 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 because they have not learned how to move at that pace, they're moving at a completely different pace. Dopamine. They've been conditioned. Pavlovian dog response to do that. Our education system operates at a completely different frequency. Can't keep up with Fruit Ninja. Sorry. Yeah, and I just think about 
my sisters, friends that I have who have young children now. And at first it was like, oh, isn't that funny how little baby Jane can, you know, use the iPad already. And there you go. It was kind of like a novelty at first. Mm -hmm. And then I started thinking about it and I was like, that's frightening. That's really frightening that they have the awareness to be able to scroll through things at such a young age where quite honestly, like my new technologies, I still have to take a little bit of time to figure it out. It's interesting to see the impact that that's going to have on the education of our future. And I will give you the outcome of that because in my household, like legitimately when, uh, remember I had two kids, when they were teens and, and whatnot, they complained violently, verbally to their friends that they lived, and I quote here, digital Auschwitz. The reason for digital Auschwitz was the fact that internet cut out in my household because of my hacker at 10.45 p.m. They live in digital Auschwitz. Nobody else, no other parent does that to their children. My kids are 29 and 27. They're independent. They're educated. They live on their own at this point. They come back and say, Dad, thank God, man, that you, you, know, you made us socialize and you left us without technology. And we were able to put in Harry Potter tape and listen to it as a family in front of a fire. Right? They're different young people. They are young people, 29 and 27. But they're very different from their peers who had unlimited internet and still do. They are very different because of that, but they understood that later. But at the time, it was digital Auschwitz. Unfortunately, I caught a lot of flack for that. So Michael, I love your story. I love the focus and attention that you have on technology addiction. I mean, I've only been sober for two years. I've been at this game for now 12 years. I was in and out of the rooms for 10 years before I quote unquote got this. And throughout these last 12 years, I haven't really gotten a sense of what technology addiction really is. And I think that if I am honest about it, there are times today that I find myself going into that realm. I'm an alcoholic. I'm a drug addict. So it makes sense, kind of like what you were saying earlier, that technology addiction is part of who I am as, a, as someone in recovery. So I appreciate the fact that you are bringing this topic to light more and more. Because like you were also saying, with COVID, with people getting introduced to this stuff at an earlier age, it's really going to be something that's going to be more and more prevalent. So I, I appreciate that. My my question for you and something that we ask, like to ask our guest host is what's one piece of advice that you would give a newcomer? Maybe in the realm of addiction, maybe in the realm of technology addiction. I, I love the insight that you had on someone who may be struggling around the solution. But what's one thing that you would tell people who are new in their journey? I have a very simple phrase. Carry a grain of sand one foot down the beach daily. Small tiny daily action, not mental contemplation of lint in your navel. There's a lot more to recovery and sobriety than just having a desire to stop, right? Most of us, that all of us, all of us that come into the rooms, There are a lot of people, there are a lot of people who want to get clean and sober. I I know I did. I really did. There are a lot of people who actually need to get clean and sober due to health, financial, legal, family reasons. They need to get sober or else they're going to be spending 16 years in a slammer behind bars. They need to get sober. The program doesn't work 
for people who want to get sober and for people who need to get sober. The program works for people that do it. Wanting it is not enough. Needing it is not enough. You have to do it. It only started working for me when I started doing the program 100%. I didn't pick and choose steps. I didn't pick and choose sponsors and change them every other week. I did not say, I don't have to write a fourth step. I can just think about it and just, you know, let's go from three to five. Why do I need to write it? Because the big book says we took a, a fearless and thorough moral inventory of ourselves and they give us a format then how to take it to a sponsor and talk about it because instead fourth column what's my role what are my character defects without that data from the four step right now that i myself can see i have no data to work for step six and seven what keeps driving me back out seven times seven times a relatively intelligent guy it has nothing to do with the intellect there's nothing to do with the fear of jail. Once I address my character defects, that very first fourth step that I did in Chicago with my amazing sponsor of the murderer, yes, manslaughter, whatever, potato, potato, I saw leaders a day with my own eyes for the first time, a liar and a thief, a liar and a thief, a liar and a thief. So when I asked my higher power to remove those two character defects for me. Please help me not to lie. Also, could you please help me not to steal? So once when I stopped stealing, I stopped lying. I had no need to pick up. Again, every single day, every without skipping, I start on my knees. I will say a very simple sentence. Please help me stay clean and sober today. Please. It took me a year and a half until I learned third step prayer by heart. I had a third step prayer. It took me four and a half years before I memorized seventh step prayer by heart. I say a seventh step prayer. I meditate. In the end of the day, every single, then I go to a meeting. Then I go to CrossFit. Then I go to work. In the end of the day, I will go back out on my porch, get on my knees physically. Put my face up to the moon and say, thank you very much for keeping me audibly. But keep me clean and sober. That process suggested to me by my sponsor the very first week, my recovery and sobriety. When you ask for help, and then you say thank you. Steps 10 and 11, review your day. When I do that, I have no struggle or any desire to go back out there. Plus, losing 64 people in 22 years is a very, very powerful lesson. Working in this field, working with people in active addiction, step 12, in the way, step 12, reminds me why I don't want to drive to North End of Hartford and pick up a bundle of dope today. I don't want that. I drive by seven package stores. My work is less than nine minutes away from home. Seven package stores on the way. I know exactly where they are. I keep driving. I don't need to stop and buy Diet Coke. In that, I can buy it at a gas station. Even there, they have beer. But I don't, there's nothing that I need inside a package store, ever. So I don't go there. Plain and simple. I changed. I changed my behavior. A grain of sand. Get on the knees and say, help me. Please help me. Say clean and sober. Simple. Three seconds. But do it daily. Grain of sand down the beach daily. One foot. And before you know it, you walk so far away from your problem, can't even see it anymore. It's no longer a problem. I don't have a drinking problem today. I have a thinking problem today, but I don't have a drinking problem today. Well, that's why I have a sponsor. And I still work my steps, my own steps, at least once a year, officially, from the book. More often than that, probably two, three times a year, I'll work my own steps. That's my advice. Do the program. Don't pick and choose. You want what we have, do what we do, do more than just come to meetings. Meetings are meetings, but that's part of the program. Fellowship is fellowship. That's another part of the program. Service is service. Steps are steps. That's a program. It's not an a la carte program. It's all or nothing. Do the whole program. Works great. Pick and choose, you know, two-stepping. First half of step one, my life is unmanageable. And the last half of step 12. And let me share it with you. Here, let me tell you about my unmanageable. 
Step four, that's not for me. Nine, amends? You know, people wrong me. I'm, you want me to go make amends? I'm not doing that. Okay? You know, your misery is refunded at the door. But the program works, plain and simple. So long as I do it, then it works for me. It's a great program. It's a great program. Three years is a great start. I'm proud of you. Thank you. So many slogans were just kicking around in my head as you were talking. It works if you work it and actions speak louder than words. And I think that advice that you had of taking action and it doesn't even have to be big, right? You, you mentioned a grain of sand. It could be something very small as long as it's something. And I always like to say that baby steps in the right direction is still progress. I had to live by that because I couldn't comprehend like these big changes in my life. I just had to not go to the package store, like you were saying, or not call those friends or not do those seemingly small things that turned out to be big rocks in my recovery. So Michael, thank you so much for your time tonight. I really, really appreciate you spending your evening with us. And it was really nice to see you. Thank you very much. I listened to some of your podcasts before. You have an amazing series. You have an amazing team. And what you guys do saves lives. My wife, who is not part of the program, listened to your podcast. said, those guys are amazing. Please continue. This is so wonderful. And thank you for having me on your program. It is an honor. And it's my pleasure to be here. I'm very grateful to all of you. We appreciate you. Thank you very much. We do. And as always, each and every one of our episodes is dedicated to the still sick and suffering alcoholic and addict, especially the individual who's going to pick up for the first time tonight. Have a good night, guys. Thank you very much. Have a good night. We appreciate your liking and subscribing to our podcast. If you liked what you heard today and would like to support our podcast, feel free to Venmo a dollar to our virtual basket at Sober Solutions Podcast. We want to hear from you too. If you have a comment, question, topic, or would like to come on the show, find us on Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube at Sober Solutions Podcast. Or you can shoot us an email to SoberSolutionsPodcast at gmail.com. Find us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And if you like what you've heard, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the show.